You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Well, good morning, church. I hope that you're doing well. Um, thank you for coming back after last week's message. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I know my heart here today, church, is that when I challenge you, it's not because I don't like you. When I challenge you, it's not because I don't love you. When I challenge you, it's because I really feel like God wants us to move beyond certain things in our life and to move forward. And as we do that, we uh, find ourselves getting closer to him. We find God working in the areas of the life that we seem to be stuck in. And when we do that, God is just present in that whole process. So last week, I, I, I kind of started a series of messages called Roots and Fruit and why we sometimes do the bad things that we don't want to do and uh, how come we don't see the, the fruit of good things in our life, why we don't see those things at work. And the answer is, like, last week we talked a little bit about how, like, there's deep roots in our life, whether it's hurt, whether it's pain, whether it's just longstanding things that we've just allowed to be part of our life that are present in us. And if we don't remove them, then we'll find ourselves constantly tripping over them. We'll find ourselves constantly going back to the same things. And the fruits of those things are never productive. They're never good. And so if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. And I hope that you'll be encouraged by that. I hope you'll be challenged by that. My hope is that while you are in your times of prayer this week, while you're in your times of reflection before God, you ask him, God, why do I do the things that I do? And hopefully he just put his finger on those things to help you so that you can see and that you can change and allow him to heal the things that need help in your life. This week's message is a little different. And this morning I want to talk to you about replacing idols with altars, replacing idols with altars. You know, one of the problems that Israel had is that they would worship God, but they would always be tempted to worship what the culture around them worshipped. God sent them to be representatives in the region of Canaan, which is known as the Promised Land, to bring uh, to that region the worship of the one true and living God. Instead, they often found themselves being influenced by the people around them, and they would start to worship the things that the people around them worshipped. So the big issue that God had with his people is that they served him with a divided heart. Yes, God's people loved God, but they also kind of loved these other things. They, they worshipped God, but then they worshipped these other things because the culture said to them, that's what you should worship. You should worship the things that we worship. And it's okay if you worship the things that we worship and worship God because, you know, God understands. And polytheism was, the worship of many gods was something that was common back in those days. So they just worship God, the, you know, the Lord God, like he's one of many other gods. But God didn't want them to do that. God wanted them to worship him only. They worshiped God, but they would worship the idols and the gods of the Canaanites. And three of the more detestable gods of the Canaanites were the gods Molech, Baal, and his consort Ashereth. And so these uh, pagan gods had with them a practice, like some really awful methods of worship. And there were places that were set up for worship, and those places were often called the high places. Now, they were called the high places because they were often on a mountain or a mesa, and people would gather there by droves, and they would worship the, there. Now, this is a message that God spoke to my heart about a month and a half ago to share with you today to really challenge us about what we worship 
and who we worship and that we should get back to worshiping God and serving him only. So maybe we can take a moment and pray as God helps us to unpack that this morning. So Heavenly Father, we just pray today, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to respond to what your spirit is saying to us this morning. Lord, let your revelation and your truth come to light and help me to proclaim it as I should. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The high places are never mentioned in a good life in the Bible. Fifty-nine times the word high places appears in Scripture. And almost all of them have to do with the worship of idols. They all have to do with God's displeasure with these so-called high places and the desire that God's people would go up to them and destroy them and have nothing to do with them. The Lord God was against the worship of idols, so much, so much so that in the Ten Commandments, the Second Commandment, he actually forbid the people of Israel from carving out any image that looked like him to worship. He said, if you're going to worship me, you don't need an idol to bow down to. You don't need a statue to worship Worship me in spirit and in truth. Yet the Israelites, because they were influenced by the culture around them, made idols to foreign gods to worship. Just like the people of Israel many years ago, there are idols in our culture that seek to take our worship and attention away from God. And so if we're not careful, we can worship the things that the culture we live in worships. The idols of our culture are many. It's money and success. Sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's fame and the desire to be recognized, noticed, and adored. Sometimes the, the, the altar of worship are the gods of sex. If you've ever questioned its influence on our culture, just look at the way that things are marketed on the commercials we watch. Just look at the way that things are portrayed in TV and movies. Just look at the way that even uh, children are sexualized in today's culture. And you know it's an awful thing, and you know that this has a prominent place in the world we live in. There are the idols of power that people worship. Achievement, influence, power over people and power over things. Power is often the pursuit of people who have money. Sometimes people who have money uh, don't, aren't interested in money anymore. They pursue the one thing they don't have, which is power and influence, and they covet that more than money itself. Yet the idols in our life are sometimes smaller and much more subtle. An idol, if you want to define it as anything, is anything we worship on the same level as God. Now, you may not have a carved image in your house that you bow down to at home, But an idol can be something that is so important to you that even if God told you to remove it from your life, you would have a hard time doing it. I'll say that again. So we don't have idols of wood and stone. Hopefully you don't in your house. If you do, smash them and get rid of them, okay? Please. Like even the little Buddha that you think is kind of cool and you think it's kind of neat, a little good luck charm, smash that thing, get rid of it. You don't need any of those things in your house. But most of us don't have idols we bow down to, but an idol is something that's so important to you that even if God said you don't need that, you would have a tough time parting with it. Did you know that King Solomon, who is considered to be the wisest king in all of Israel's history, 
You know that he was responsible for building the high places in Israel? He literally built places of idol worship in his kingdom. Now, why in the world would the wisest king in the world, whom God appeared to, do something like this? Well, we find the reason in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 4 through 11. And so, if you can look at that with me, we'll see why Solomon did these things. It says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not tr- wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Amorites, on the mount east of Jerusalem, And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Isn't that amazing to think about that the wisest king in all of Israel's history, the king that experienced the most success due to God's hand, built places of idol worship. And he built these places to appease his many wives. Now, if you know about Solomon, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, many of the marriages that he did, he did so for the purpose of trade and treaty with other nations. And by doing so, he increased the power and the influence of the Israelites, but he also was able to maintain peace in them. But how many know that it wasn't exactly peaceful for Solomon as he followed and as he had all these influences in his life? I want to pause here and take note that the gods that Solomon built and the idols of high places of worship were to different gods and goddesses. One of them was Ashereth, which was a goddess of fertility like the Greek goddess Diana. This is something that the Israelites constantly had problems with worship. They always worshiped Baal and they always worshiped Ashereth because that was a god and goddess of fertility. So Baal was the rain god. Asherah was the goddess of fertility. And so the Israelites wanted to make sure their families were productive and had many children, so they worshiped Asherah. They wanted to make sure that their crops were plentiful, so they worshiped Asherah and Baal. Chemosh was the sun god of the Moabites, and Molech was a god of child sacrifice. Can you imagine that? And that... Part of the child's sacrifice of Molech was the firstborn child was always sacrificed to Molech for guidance and wisdom. And although theologians don't believe that Solomon himself worshipped these gods, he built them so that his wives could worship them and to appease them, something the Lord specifically forbade him to do. And Solomon as king was a spiritual leader of the people, and for him to build these altars was to quietly endorse these gods, and it confused the people. And so they thought to themselves, well, I should worship these things too, because after all, Solomon created them and he built them, right? So there's no problem here, correct? Actually, there is a problem, and the Lord takes note of it in verse 9. And it says, didn't say, did it say the Lord understood Did it say like the Lord gets it that there's other gods? Did the Lord say, hey, no, that's okay? No, it says the Lord was angry with Solomon because he had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now, most of the the, uh, Old Testament saints, God appears to them once 
And it's a pretty big deal, and it forever changes the course of their life. Solomon had the benefit of God appearing to him in, the, in spirit twice, in, in very much in front of him, and still he turned away. Verse 10, And he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded, and therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been, has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Wow, isn't that crazy? That this one act of Solomon leading the nation astray, done so so that he could just quiet the noise of people that were pressuring him to do things, it ended up with the result of him losing his kingdom. So Solomon built the high places that allowed idolatry to stay in the land, and he paid for it with the loss of his kingdom. Solomon was not the only Israelite king that built idols. Jeroboam, the renegade king who took the ten tribes away from Solomon's son when they rebelled and reigned in the north, he wanted to keep the people from going back to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was where the temple was. Jerusalem was where the people would worship God. And he said, if I allow the people to go back to Jerusalem, then surely they'll return back to the kingdom of the descendants of David, and I don't want that to happen. So what did Jeroboam do? He set up idols of worship. He set up two idols of worship in the northernmost part of the kingdom and the southernmost part of the kingdom, in Dan and in Bethel. And he said, okay, I'm going to create an idol for the Israelites to worship. And it was something from their history. It was something from their past so that they would recognize it and remember it. And you know what he set up for them to worship? He made golden calves for the people to worship. They said, worship here. And so the people worshiped in Dan and Bethel. And they stayed away from the worship of the true God because false worship had been established. Sometimes the most difficult idols to take down are the ones that our fathers have built. Sometimes the most difficult idols to take down are the ones that our fathers have built. The Israelites had a hard time breaking away from these idols in these high places. The books of Kings and Chronicles cover all the reigns of all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah. And each verse chronicles the king, how long they reigned, and if they were a good king or an evil king. And the measure of whether or not the king was good or evil was whether he led the people in the worship of Jehovah, the one true God, or if he led the people astray to follow idols. And if a king led the people to reform, led them away from the worship of idols, and led them back to the worship of the one true God, then they were considered to be good kings in the eyes of the Lord. But you know what's interesting? Even these good kings who did amazing reforms and brought the people back to the worship of the God of Israel, even they, these good kings who did great reforms and brought the people back to the worship of the one true God, and said, hey, listen, we need to get back to the covenant. We need to get back to the law of Moses. We need to get back to what the prophet said. Even though they led people in that, all of these kings had a hard time with one thing. And you know what it was? Tearing down the high places. Because... It was Solomon who did that. And Solomon was a great descendant. Solomon was a reminder of our glory days. Solomon was a successful king. And, you know, he's, he's one of us, so we can't possibly tear these things down. And there were, in all in all, there were 21 good kings in Israel and Judah. But out of the 21 of them, only four actually 
removed all of idolatry and the worship of false gods in Israel. Only four. And their names are Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Only four out of 21 good kings. It took them years to destroy these high places. And when they destroyed them, they didn't just simply say, okay, we're not going to have idol worship anymore. They smashed the idols. They burnt their altars. They demolished the buildings. They closed the door. They padlocked them and said, you will not worship these false gods anymore. And you need to know that it takes time. It takes effort. It takes zeal for the Lord that says, I'm not going to follow the, the idols and the things that the world worships, the things that my fathers worship, the things that the culture worships anymore. It takes effort to do that, and it takes time to remove it. But you have to let God's zeal drive you so you refuse to bow down to these idols anymore. I'll say it again. The most difficult idols to remove are the ones that our fathers built. And if it was something that was installed uh, instilled in you when you were younger, sometimes it's difficult to remove it all the more. Sometimes it's unspoken. Sometimes if you lived in a household where you had nothing, sometimes the emphasis was hoarding things because you didn't want to miss out on something or you didn't want to lose something. They were instilled in our Christian home, but they were worldly nonetheless. Some of the idols that we might have been raised with unconsciously is the love of money, making it, hoarding it, buying things uncontrollably, being in debt, trying to appear successful, the pursuit of materialism, although in this culture is a good thing, when it comes down to it, God says, Jesus, when he walked this earth, it says you can't serve God and money. One will choose to be a master of the other. So you have to choose to serve. And when you serve with God first in terms of how you, how you uh, save money, how you make money, how you spend money, you realize you serve God with open hands, right? Instead of holding on to everything that's, that you have, you open hands to the Lord. You say, Lord, all that I have is from you. How often do we say that, right? God, I used to have nothing, and now I'm blessed because of you. Instead of holding on to what God's given us, we must serve God with open hands so that whatever he wants to use, he can use. Sometimes there's an idol of self-righteousness, taking stock in how good we are and how much we know. We, sometimes there are people that they grow in their knowledge of the Scriptures and they grow in discipleship, and a weird thing happens to people that they take great pride in this to the point that they think that they're better than other people and they look down on others. Can I tell you that's not the purpose of why God wants you to grow. In fact, I would dare say it's the antithesis to what God wants you to grow in. God doesn't want us to grow in pride because of spiritual things. He wants us to grow in humility and bring others closer to him. There's the idol of religion. Observing religion, but it has no meaning to you. You just do it because of tradition. You don't even know the spiritual application behind it. Can I tell you today that religion was made by God to worship him, not for man to worship religion. Either your faith in practice brings you closer to God, or it doesn't. And if it has no meaning to you, it is just another idol. The idols of drugs and alcohol, 
the environment you grew up in may have shown you that to avoid pain or to avoid sadness or difficult situations is by self-medicating yourself. And many have thought it was normal. Many of us, you might have grew up in that environment, and you might thought, have thought that was normal until you came into an environment where there was a healthy family doing things healthy and dealing with their emotions and their situations and their stress and their trauma in a healthy way. And then you kind of go, yeah, maybe this is not the way. God doesn't want you in a place where you can't even comprehend life. God doesn't want you in a place where you're avoiding dealing with things because of self-medication in different ways. There's the idol of pornography and lust. And you might even think to yourself, that doesn't happen in Christian homes. But sometimes, if you were raised in a Christian home, you may struggle with this. Because as a kid, you're brought up to told not to lust, not to have inappropriate desires for the opposite sex, not to even touch somebody, you know, without any kind of intent that's good. And so you're so conditioned to just be careful with everything to the point of repression, to the point that you have these natural desires. Can I, can I share with you something that I hope that you won't take this clip and, and use it later, okay? Dare I say it, God created sex for your enjoyment and the procreation of, this, of, of family. That's why he created it. He created it for the confines of marriage. But the world has hijacked it, taken it, and made it and perverted it so that something that's shameful is something that's awful. And so Christians who grew up in a particular home with repressed feelings, they may hide these things that are going on in their life. And as a result, they don't know how to interact with the opposite sex in a healthy way. God doesn't want us to worship at these idols. They're empty wells. They're cisterns filled with mud. They're not what God intended for you. And they're robbing you from true intimacy. And it's something, guys and girls, if you bring into your marriage, will sabotage the intimacy that you desire to have in that relationship. So be done with it. You don't need it. God wants us to have a healthy view of intimacy, sex, and marriage. There's another idol as well. And I might step on a few toes when I say it. But for some Christians, the idol of the past is very big. This is one that every church struggles with, competing with past revivals, past outpourings, past successes when the church was bigger and when we had more people and there was a children's ministry and then we used to do outreach in a tent or we used to do things in the community when a church gets to a place where their best years are something they reflect upon in the past instead of living in the moment and looking forward to the future, that becomes an idol. We can become like the people of Israel when we look at the past and we say, oh my goodness, the past. Why can't we have what we had in the past? I wish that we had the past. Do you know that when the people of Israel were taken captive and they were moved to Babylon, the Babylonians were so ruthless, they destroyed Solomon's temple. They destroyed it, burned it with fire, and so that one stone wasn't left on another. And then God laid on the heart of Ezra, the priest, to go back to uh, the ruins of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so he, he... went back with a group of people. He went back with resources from Cyrus, and they went and they rebuilt the temple. And the temple was more modest than Solomon's temple. And do you know that there was people that came back 
from exile. Older people who had seen the glory of the first temple, and when they saw the, the second temple rebuilt, they complained about it. They said, well, this temple is not as good as Solomon's temple. This temple is not as ornate or as blessed. It's not as big as Solomon's temple was. Never mind the fact that they had no temple, right? Never mind that they had rubble before. Never mind that this temple that was going to be built would be the temple, the second temple, the temple that Jesus would worship in, the temple that Herod would make more ornate and fabulous during the days of Jesus. My point is this, church, is that we, if we get so caught up in worshiping what was and what used to be, that we'll miss out on the blessing of the here and now. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I grew up in times of revival. But I don't want to go back to the 80s and 90s. Amen? With the big hair, right? The pleated pants, remember all that? The materialism, all that stuff. We look at those things and say, oh, I wish God would move like that. God can move like that, but it doesn't mean that he has to do it the exact same way that it used to for it to happen. I don't want to be a slave to the idols of the past. I want to see what God wants to do here and now. And I won't judge it according to the past. That's like you taking over for a manager that you used to work for and they left the company and you come into that position and say, well, so-and-so you didn't used to do it that way. As a manager, that annoys you, doesn't it? It's like, well, I'm not that person. Maybe they like to do everything by paper. But I like to do things digitally now. And so we're doing it that way. And people complain about it. You know, if it annoys you, it certainly annoys most of us. Like, listen, God has something in store for us in the future that's going to be big and beautiful and bright. The thing about idols is they're empty and lifeless things. You still with me? Hopefully I have not glazed over yet. You know, I know we're talking Old Testament, and you're like, what does this have to do with my life? But trust me, we're getting there. The thing about idols is they're lifeless and they are useless. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44, we're not going to look at it now, but he mocks those who worship idols. He says, a man will go into the forest and he'll cut down a tree. And he'll take that tree and he'll cut it in half. And with one half, he'll build a fire and bake bread on it. And with the other half, he'll carve it. He'll uh, make it pretty looking. He'll cover it with wood and precious stones. And then he'll set it up as an idol and he'll bow down it from it to it and say, deliver me. He says, how foolish. It's just a tree. It can't help you. It can't save. But they hadn't made the differentiation between it's basically the same thing. The psalmist writes about how utterly helpless and useless idols are to save. Psalm 115, 4 through 8, if you'll look with me. Look what the psalmist says. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have not mouths. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have feet, but do not feel. Sorry, they have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. The idols of our culture are empty and lifeless. They don't have anything to teach us. They promise guidance and fulfillment, but in the end, they're just a dead end. Look at all the celebrities who come to the end of their fame and they get suicidal. 
They come to the end of their fame and they question about who they are and they, they, they are no longer happy. Fame, money, success, all of these idols of our culture are empty and useless. When they get to the end of it, it's you who are used, not them. So what do we do? Well, obviously, we should get rid of our idols. Idols are empty. They don't speak. They cannot see. They do not lead. They're based on worthless things. All of the idols of this world are based on things of this life that will not survive and make it to heaven. Everything that's worshipped in this world, everything that's considered important in this world from a worldly carnal sense will not be present in heaven. So why worship those things that won't last? Idols look pretty, but underneath there's nothing. They're wood, they're stone, they're covered with gold, silver, and precious stones. But as a god, they're worthless. They're worth more in the value of the things that are on them than as their value as a deity. Until you see these idols in your life as worthless, you will never get rid of them. And it has to start with the willingness to let God lead you and do the hard work of expelling anything from your life that tries to put itself on the same level as the Lord you serve. Only four good kings in Israel's history finally removed the high places from Israel, but it took years to do. But they were driven by their desire for the Lord and their desire to worship him only. You know, it starts with recognizing that Jesus is the one and only most important thing in your life and that everything else is secondary comparatively. Everything else must be compared. You don't need an idol to show you the way because God by his Holy Spirit will lead you. You don't need an idol to deliver you and to make your life better or to to save you and to ensure your place in heaven because Christ already did that on the cross. When he died for our sins, he paid the price for our sin on the cross. When he rose again, he showed that he was victorious over the grave and that he was who he said he was, which means that he is God in the flesh, resurrected and alive today. We have to look to Jesus for our hope. True worship puts Christ first in all things. It can't be Jesus and. Jesus and money. Jesus and my job. Jesus and self-righteousness and religion. Jesus and drugs and alcohol. Christ challenges us by asking us, who do we serve? And if you want a good little example of who we serve, some, a preacher said this a while back, and I, I believe it's a good litmus test of what we worship. Not what we say we worship, but what we actually worship. Whatever we spend our time, our treasure, and our talent on is what we worship. And when you think about that for a moment, all of a sudden it kind of is very a humbling thought, isn't it? If you think about where you spend your time, your talent, and your treasure on those things, you begin to think to yourself, well, maybe God isn't as important as I say he is. And then you might start thinking of the things that are important in your life, the things you spend a lot of your money on, the things you spend a lot of your time on. Don't get me wrong, there's good and wholesome things that we should spend those things on. But if it's something that takes the place of who God is and the worship of him, it becomes an idol. God wants all of our attention. God wants all of our attention. So listen to this. One of the things that got God really upset with the Israelites is that he was jealous It's one of the few emotions that God shows that seems out of character for him, doesn't it? That God would be jealous. That God would be jealous of your attention for something else. 
Can you think about that for a minute? That God so wants your undivided and unadulterated attention and adoration that he's jealous for it. That if anything else takes the place of it, he says, why can't you see me that way? Why don't you spend time with me that way? Why don't you love me that way? And it might sound very selfish of God, but God created you as your, his, as your father. He wants to spend time with you. So God wants our undivided attention, all of our worship. He doesn't want to share worship with other things. He wants you to worship him fully and only. And so great was his jealousy for the people of Israel that when they got into idolatry, eventually he sent them away to Babylon to be in captivity because of their idolatry. And you know, it's a really interesting thing that Israel always struggled with the worship of Jehovah, the worship of Yahweh, the worship of the one true God, the Israelites, and the worship of other idols. You know what happened after the Babylonian captivity after they spent 70 years in a culture that was saturated with idols? In a culture where they were forced to bow down to an idol of Nebuchadnezzar. When they spent 70 years in that culture, when they came back from it, they never again worshipped other gods. They worshipped the one true God. They worshipped the Lord only. And that's what God's discipline will sometimes do in our life, is that we recognize we don't need anything else when he strips everything else away from us. That's a hard word, but it's a truth. You still with me? So what do we need to do? Replace your idols with altars. Amen? Replace your idols with altars. Whenever the good kings of Israel of history removed an idol, they often set up an altar of worship to the Lord. And they led the people in serving God. Whenever there were significant moments in the life of God's people, they often built an altar. At the crossing of the River Jordan, the people of Israel and Joshua built an altar of 12 stones. On Mount Carmel, when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal, he built an altar. When Jacob wrestled with God and God spoke to him, he built an altar there. When Abraham messed up, when he went down to Egypt and Philistia and, and lied instead of trusting God, when God rescued him and redirected him on the right path, it says that God went back to a place called Bethel. Now, in, in Hebrew words, the word Beth means house, and the suffix after it usually meant something. So Bethel was the house of God. So when Abraham messed up, when he did the things he shouldn't have done, when God rescued him and redirected him, and how many have been rescued and redirected by God in your life? And aren't you thankful for that today? When God rescued and redirected him, he built an altar there, and he said, God, I worship you. God, I reconsecrate myself to you. God, I redevote myself to you once more. And he built an altar there and worshiped. Build an altar, not an idol. Get rid of the idols in your life and build an altar. Now, the thing about altars is that they're not fancy. There's no valuable metal or precious stones. We don't have altars of stone anymore. Uh, it's not like you can go home and, like, I want you to stack some stones and light a fire and sacrifice a squirrel on it or something like that. That's not what, I, not what I'm asking you to do. We don't have altars of stone anymore. But you know what the front of this church is always called, and you may not understand it because you've heard it so often. The front is called an altar. And we don't sacrifice things here. We bring 
the burdens and we lay them before the Lord. We get rid of our sin and we sacrifice it before the Lord. And we do away with the things of our past. And we say, Lord, I here I redevote myself to you. Here I worship you. Here I give you my life once more. That's why we have the front of this church. That's why we have altars. That's why it's called the altar. Not because there's stone or anything fancy up here. It's because it's the place where we meet with the Lord. So what do we do? How do we replace the idols of this world with altars? Number one, recognize that altars are humble. They're made out of stones from the ground. There's nothing fancy about them. They're born from humble circumstances. When life humbles you, go to God in that place of humility. So the way you build an altar is you start with humility. You start with saying, God, Sometimes, you, you, the only time you can recognize is Jesus all you, is all that you need is when Jesus is all that you have. And in those times when you go to the Lord, you go to him in humility. The second thing, altars are a place of worship. The focus of idols is the idol and what the worshiper can get from the idol. But an altar, on an altar, the focus is God. An altar is a place of gratitude. The altar is a place where God met with that person. And that altar was a place where they worshiped God and say, God, I thank you that I'm alive today. God, I thank you that you brought me through these difficult circumstances. God, I thank you for what you're doing in my life. And the, the altar was a place of worship. So let it be a place of humility. You bring yourself humbly before the Lord. Let it be a place of worship in which you bring yourself before God and you say, God, I worship you. I don't want anything from you. And that's the difference between the worship of God and the worship of idols. The worship of idols is like, would you give me something, O idol? O God of this Canaanite deity, would you bring rain on our crops? And would you allow our family to be productive? The worship of an idol was always wanting something in return. But the worship of God stems from what God has already done. It stems from a place of gratitude. It says, God, I thank you that you met me here. And oh, that you would have a place in your life where God met you. That you would have a place in your history, whether it's at the altar of another church, whether you came to Christ in an evangelistic crusade at Bethany Assembly of God, or you were discipled at a church in New York, upstate New York, or whether you came to know who God was through a time that you spent with a, a friend who led you to Christ and prayed for you and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that altar, that sacred place, is in a parking lot somewhere where a friend shared with you who God was. Oh, that you would build an altar and remember those places and reflect upon them because when things get hard and when life gets difficult, we need to reflect on what God's done. And the miracle of your life, of you sitting here, Hear me, brothers and sisters of Christ. The miracle of you sitting here is God at work in your life. And that's something to thank God for. And as tough as things get for you right now, I encourage you today to not forget the moments that he's brought you through. An altar is a humble place. The altar is a place of worship. But the altar was also a place of sacrifice. It means you're bringing something of value to God that you won't get back. I'll say it again. You're bringing something to God to offer to him that you won't get back. 
the giving up of something valuable to you and handing it over to him. We don't come to God empty-handed, but we bring to him whatever he asks us to give up so we can get closer to him. And so when we come to an altar, if we were coming to an Old Testament altar, we would bring some kind of sacrifice to offer to God. But in the modern context, we don't do that anymore. We're not under the sacrificial system anymore. Christ has fulfilled the, the greatest sacrifice for us, so we don't need to do that anymore. But instead, the sacrifice that God asks of us is the sacrifice of giving up the things that we used to consider to be important so we can follow him. The sacrifice is sometimes the sacrifice of praise when we don't feel like it. Sometimes the sacrifice is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, giving God praise and giving him uh, gratitude for what he's done in our life. And sometimes those things are hard, but those things are part of our worship. It's part of that altar experience. Building an altar instead of an idol means you throw away the things taught you, the world taught you was important and you give them up to worship God and follow his ways. So this morning I want to ask you, there's something God is telling you you don't need anymore. Is God working in your heart? And in some ways it feels like you've been fighting with the affection for God and the affection for these other things. In fact, it's something that keeps sabotaging your walk with Christ, I would dare even say. That you want to serve God, you want to get close to him, you want to, have, you want to follow God like you used to, but these things in your life keep competing for your attention and your affection. And if that's the case, God doesn't want that competition to even take place. Even as I'm speaking to you today, maybe God's talking to you about things that in your life you need to do away with and you don't actually need anymore. But he wants you to let them go so you could follow him wholeheartedly in devotion. Is that thing become, has it become more important to you than him? I believe the Lord wants you to lay it down today at an altar in Living Hope Church and just give him your full devotion and your consecration. Come to the Lord today without a divided heart, with a heart fully devoted to the Lord and his ways. I wonder today if we can just pray and just close our eyes in a moment of reflection before the Lord. What is God telling you you don't need anymore? What is God saying to you that as we've talked about it, as I've preached about it this morning, God's saying, listen, this thing that's so important to you, you've got to let it go. Can I challenge you with even the thought that sometimes there are good things that God wants us to let go because he has something better for us? There are times in our life where the pursuit of those good things in our life become an idol to us and it becomes the thing that dominates our prayer life. It becomes the thing that we focus on and think about and talk about all the time. Sometimes good things can get in the way of God's best for you. Sometimes you just got to let it go. I found oftentimes when I let go of the things that I consider to be the most important, the things that I, I've held on to so closely, when I give them over to God, God gives them to me then because he's no longer, that's a thing that's no longer competing with him anymore. It's almost like he was saying to you, it's great that you finally realize you don't need that. Now I can give that to you because God does not want to compete with those other things in your life. So maybe as I'm talking today, 
is there something that's coming to mind? A situation, a person, a thing that you used to consider important? I believe today God wants you to lay that thing down. And, and without anyone looking around, and you can say, today, Pastor, could you just pray for me? I know what I need to do, but I need the strength to do it. If you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. Pray for me today. I need to let go of some things. There's some idols I need to smash. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Then let's take a moment and pray and believe that God will do that today. God wants you to build an altar in place of the idols. Let's do that. God, we just give you. Lord, today I pray. Today would be the day in which we devote ourselves to you fully. God, you don't want to compete with the things of this world. Lord, they're all empty and lifeless. Lord, as the psalmist wrote, they, they don't speak, they don't see, they don't direct, they don't lead. Lord, we don't need those things in our life. But Lord, we've come to depend upon them. And when we're stressed and when we need help, we run to those things instead of running to you. And God, you don't want that. Lord, you want us to run to you. And so today, as Lord, you've spoken to us about the things we need to let go, I pray that you'd help each person to be able to lay that down at your altar and say, I don't need this anymore. And God, I commit myself and consecrate myself once more to you. You are my God. I will worship and follow you. Jesus, you only help me to become the person you want me to be. So I pray today that, Lord, that you would do that in our hearts and help us to follow you fully, uninhibited, uninterrupted, and with full attention and affection upon you, Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.